Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. All right. Well, good morning, church. Um, It is good to be back with you. We were blessed a little over a week ago with our fourth boy, uh, Joel Franklin Walker. And so Joel is doing well. Um, He's lovingly referred to in our home as Baby Joel or Baby Jojo, or we're still thinking of some more nicknames for him. So if you've got some ideas, feel free to throw those out to us as well. And uh, and just in case you weren't sure what our long-term plans were, uh, his middle name is Franklin, okay? His middle name is Franklin. Our hearts are here in Franklin, and our desire is to see the gospel go forth and to serve the people of Franklin and the church in Franklin for years to come. And so his middle name is Franklin. We love Franklin. But Joel is doing well. Britt is doing well. Let me thank you guys for showing us the love and support that you have this past week. Thank you for those that have brought uh, meals to us this week. You guys have set the bar high for uh, everyone else now to follow. Uh, Just kidding. Um, But thank you guys. That has been a big blessing to us. Thank you, Dad, for allowing me to have some time off preaching this month so that I can uh, have more time at home helping us uh, get adjusted to now being a family of six. So, okay. I am going to preach today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, though. I'm glad you are ready. You're ready. That's good. All right. So, yes, please, please pray for us. We are in the newborn phase right now, and Britt and I both really do love our sleep. And so, as you guys know, in the newborn phase, you don't get as much of that as you would like. And so, for those of us that like to sleep, it can sometimes be hard. So, pray for us, but we're doing well. Joel and Britt will likely be with all of us here in the next couple of weeks. So, Um, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to be at this morning as we are continuing our series going through the gospel according to Mark. And as you are turning there, I want to share with you a story that I read about recently that happened with the NHL team, the Chicago Blackhawks. All right. Now, I don't know much about hockey. The only things I know about hockey are what I learned from watching the Mighty Ducks repetitively as I was growing up, right? So I know about the flying V. I know you're supposed to quack before you take the ice, things like that. But other than that, I really don't know much about hockey. But I read something interesting about hockey. um, And what I learned is that the NHL has this really weird rule. It's a strange rule that you are allowed to have what is called an emergency goalie. You're allowed to have an emergency goalie. These are goalies that are not on the roster, but they are instead up in the stands just in case all of your goalies on the roster get injured. You can call down the emergency goalie to play in the game. And it is a rule that most people aren't aware of because it is a rule that most teams have never had to uh, implement or make use of. Hockey News writing about the emergency goalie says it is among hockey's great quirks. It's the only pro sport with the potential for someone not on the roster to come out of the stands and actually play in the game, okay? Um, so it's a, it's a strange rule. So the story I was reading was this last March, um, there was a guy named Scott Foster, who he is a 36-year-old accountant. Uh, he has not played pro- uh, competitive hockey in over a decade, never played pro hockey, played some college hockey when he was in college, but had it been years since he played hockey, he gets called to be the emergency goalie. 
Now, he said he'd been asked to do this before. It was really a pretty sweet gig. You get to go to the game for free. You get to sit in a press box. You get to eat free food, and you are the emergency goalie. Well, what happened this last month is here this guy is. He's up enjoying his free game, enjoying his free food, and then what happens? The first goalie gets injured. And he's thinking, okay, no big deal. I'm just the emergency goalie. They've got more, so I'm going to eat another hot dog. I'm going to enjoy these nachos and enjoy the game. But then what happens later in the game? The second goalie gets injured. And then he gets the call. Scott gets the call. He gets called from the crowd to now come down to the locker room and suit up to be the Chicago Blackhawks goalie. It had been over a decade since he had played competitive hockey. They rush him down to the locker room. They get him a jersey. They get him his gear. The only advice he remembers the coach telling him was just to put his helmet on, which is a good advice if you're going to play hockey. Put the helmet on. And then he goes out and plays the game. And to everyone's surprise, he does really well. He plays the last 15 minutes of the game. He makes like seven saves, allows no goals, and the Chicago Blackhawks go on to win the game. And while he was playing, social media was just blowing up because they couldn't believe here was this guy who hadn't played in over 10 years, gets this incredible opportunity, and is successful. He succeeds. He's victorious. And now his performance has inspired all of us, you know, in our 30s, mid to late 30s, 40s, to now re engage our dreams of becoming professional athletes. And so he's inspired another group of people to now try to be in professional sports. Well, in our passage this morning, we are going to see that this is who Jesus calls out of the crowd to follow him. Jesus calls the unimpressive, the unprepared, and those that don't have the resumes you think they would have, and Jesus calls them out of the crowd to follow him. He calls the unimpressive, the unequipped, the unprepared to come down and follow him and go out and change the world. And this is often how Jesus works. I hope you take no offense in this, but our church, both capital C, the universal church, and this local church, we are a church that is made up of emergency goalies. We were the unlikely. We were the unimpressive. We were the unprepared. And maybe some of us were only at church for the free food. But Jesus called. And when Jesus calls, that changes everything. When Jesus calls, that changes everything. And I've titled this sermon, The Called Out Ones. The title of this sermon is The Called Out Ones. Let me explain why I have given it this title. The word that the Bible uses for church in the New Testament is the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia. And let me break down ekklesia for you for a moment. It's made up of a prefix and a root word. The prefix is ek, ek, which means out of. And the root word kaleo means to call. So literally, ecclesia means the called out ones. When the New Testament uses the word church, it is referring to the assembly, the gathering of the called out ones. The called out ones. We have been called out of the crowd. And we're going to see here in this passage that Jesus will call his disciples out of the crowd. And so now, as followers of Jesus, we live in this tension of living as the called in the midst of the crowd. We live in this tension of living as the called in the midst of the crowd. 
And as we look in our passage this morning, let me kind of walk you through what we're going to look at. We're going to look at our passage this morning. We're first going to notice the crowd. The first part of our passage, we're going to notice the crowd. And we're going to look and see what the crowd is concerned about. And then I'm going to give us some cautions about living in the midst of this crowd. And then the second part of the passage, we're going to look at when he calls the 12 apostles. And so we're going to look at the called. And we're going to point out what the called can take comfort in. And all throughout this sermon, I want you to be asking yourself in your head, in your heart, am I living like the crowd or am I living as the called? Am I living like the crowd or am I living as the called? Well, if you're there in Mark 3, look now starting in verse 7. Mark 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idzumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Remember from a few weeks ago, the last time we were preaching in Mark, Jesus had just been in a conflict with the religious leaders about the Sabbath. You remember he had shown compassion on a disabled man. He had healed his hand on the Sabbath. And when he did this, the religious leaders immediately went out and started to plot and plan how they could destroy, how they could kill Jesus. Jesus then withdraws away from the city with his disciples and a great crowd follows him. And some of these cities, you might not be familiar with them or where they're located, but essentially this is saying people from all over were gathering to him. So the city of Izumia, which is a, a fun word to say, that was in the south, right? Tyre and Sidon were in the north. Beyond the Jordan was to the east. And so essentially people all over were gathering and flocking to Jesus. A crowd was forming. But look why the crowd was forming. Look why the crowd was forming. The end of verse 8. It says, when the crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. The crowd was forming because what they had heard about Jesus and what he was doing. He was healing the sick. He was cleansing leprosy. He was restoring function to those that were paralyzed. And so everyone wanted to come and be healed and be touched by him. And so the crowd presses in around him. Now, at first, this seems like a good thing, right? I mean, isn't this what we want, a crowd around Jesus? I mean, look at all these people around Jesus that can now hear the good news and hear him preach about the kingdom and, and his plan for salvation. But this is why we need to compare and contrast the crowd versus the called. The crowd versus the called. The first thing we need to notice about the crowd is this, is that they are concerned more about their bodies than their souls. The first thing we need to notice about the crowd is that they are more concerned about their bodies than their souls. And we see this over and over again in Jesus' interaction with the crowd. People are flocking to Jesus because they want physical healing, but they have no desire for repentance. They have no desire to put their faith or trust in him. They have no desire to follow after him. They merely want to get physical healing from him. They want their bodies to be healed. And isn't this still what we see today? 
Don't we see crowds, so to speak, who desire physical healing and prioritize physical health over their spiritual health? Aren't our hospital waiting rooms packed full and yet many churches are empty? Don't we spend an incredible amount of time and energy and money pouring over and and on our bodies, our physical bodies, and yet we neglect our souls, we neglect our hearts? And even Christians, we do this too. I mean, if you were to, to be in a group of Christians and to take prayer requests, what are most of the things we are praying about? We are praying about our physical bodies. We are praying about physical healing. Now listen, we are to pray for physical healing, okay? We are to pray for those who are ill and sick. We most definitely should be doing that, but that should not be all that we are praying about, right? We should be praying also for our hearts. We should be praying for those that are sick. We should be praying for those that, while they are sick, we should be praying for their faith, for their anxiety, for their trust, and how that physical illness is affecting their heart, how that physical illness is affecting their souls. We should be praying for that as well. Church, do you live like the crowd or the called? Do you care more about your body than your soul? Church, do you pray more like the crowd or the called? Now, certainly we are to take care of our physical bodies. We are to be good stewards of the health and the bodies that God gives us. But what the crowd does is they take it a step further and they worship and serve the body. They idolize the physical body. And a friend of mine who has mentored me and discipled me, um, he, he loves to work out and exercise. He's one of those strange people. I know some of you just hearing that someone likes to exercise and work out, might, that might make you a little bit nauseous. Um, but he's one of those odd people that really enjoys it. But he's, al- he's, so he's always motivated to work out. But he always keeps this verse in mind, which, which I love and respect about him. He keeps 1 Timothy 4a always on his mind. And for those of you that love to exercise and work out, this might be a good verse for you to remember. 1 Timothy 4.8 says this, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. And so he will exercise most days, but not until... Not until he has had time in the word and in prayer and with spending time with the Lord. And then he will go on and and work out and work on some physical bodily training because it does hold some value. But godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise in this life and the life to come. Followers of Jesus, the called out ones, should care more about their soul than their body. This is why Christians can say it's worth it to suffer physical persecution and sometimes torture and sometimes even lose their lives for the sake of Christ. It's because they value their soul more than their body. And this is why a follower of Jesus who is sick or gets diagnosed with cancer, why they can continue on with hope and joy and peace is because they care more about their soul than their body. The crowd cares about the body more than the soul. And so followers of Jesus, let me caution you. This is my first caution to you, that as you live in the midst of the crowd, you will be tempted to care more about your body than your soul. You will be tempted to care more about your body than your soul. Well, how else is the crowd different from the called? Look at verse 9, Mark 3, verse 9. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. 
The crowd is flocking to him. Jesus has to have his disciples essentially get a getaway boat ready for him because they're all pressing in around him. Notice that the crowd does not really care about Jesus. The crowd does not care about Jesus. The crowd wanted to use Jesus for selfish gain. The crowd wanted to use Jesus for selfish gain. They did not care about his personal space. They did not care that he was trying to rest and retreat and get away from the crowd. They did not care. They wanted to see what they could get out of him. And we see this same crowd mentality play out today. People come to church to see what they can get out of God. Maybe some want to get a, one of those get-out-of-hell-free cards, right? They want to raise their hand, pray a prayer, walk an aisle so that someone will say they're set, they're good, but they have no desire to repent and put their faith in Christ. Maybe some come to God to get some motivation to be a better person or to work on their morality or be a better parent or fix their marriage, but they're coming to God to try to get something out of God. The crowd gathers to use Christ instead of treasure Christ. The crowd comes to use Christ instead of treasure Christ. Instead of coming to Jesus to worship him, they want to see what they can get out of him to worship themselves. Instead of coming to Jesus to worship him, they come to him to see what they can get out of him to worship themselves. And we've all done this and we still do this. In our lives, even as Christians, we try to go to Christ to use him to get what we want. But followers of Jesus should have hearts that can more and more echo the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3. Philippians 3, 7, and 8, this should be something that our hearts can more and more echo. It says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Followers of Jesus, let me caution you that as you live in the midst of the crowd, not to use Jesus for selfish gain, but to treasure him and worship him. May he not be viewed as a means to an end, but instead himself the end prize that we are willing to sell everything else to obtain. The crowd cares more about the body than the soul. The crowd uses Jesus and does not treasure Jesus. Well, how else is the crowd different than the called? Look at verse 11 now, Mark 3, verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Living in the crowd, we see the enemy try to distort the message of Jesus and distract people from the mission of Jesus. Many times in the crowd, the message of Jesus will be distorted and the mission will be distracted. And here in this passage, we see something happen that happens a few times in the book of Mark, which you might initially think is sort of strange, but the demons will declare who Jesus is, they'll proclaim who Jesus is, and Jesus silences them. Jesus silences them. 
I mean, it took human beings a while to kind of figure out who Jesus was, piece it together, that he is God in the flesh, that he is the Messiah, the rescuer, the redeemer. But the enemy, the enemy knew exactly who he was anytime they entered his presence. They would fall down and scream out before him that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. And Jesus silences them, which causes us to ask the question, why would Jesus silence them? I mean, they're proclaiming who he is. Well, you see, the enemy is proclaiming him to be the Son of God, which is a true statement. But the intent was evil. The intent was evil. The intent was to distort the message and distract people from the mission. And this is how the enemy operates. He takes the truth and speaks the truth, maybe speaks a half-truth or some of the truth, sometimes speaks the whole truth, but does it with an evil intent in a way that it will distort the message of Jesus and distract people from the mission of Jesus. And so Jesus silences the unclean spirits, demonstrates his authority over them, because the true message, Jesus' true message and his true mission would not make sense to people until the plan of salvation was fully revealed through his death and resurrection. And any proclamation of him being the Messiah or the Son of God before the cross would only distort his message and distract from his mission. You see, the people had been waiting for a Messiah or a rescuer. The, the prophets in the Old Testament said that one would come that would save and liberate God's people. And the people at the time were under Roman oppression. And so they were looking for a military leader to liberate them out from under Roman rule. And so Jesus knew, yes, the enemy was declaring a true statement, revealing his true identity, but it was done with an evil intent. Because the enemy would have loved for the people to recognize Jesus and immediately make him king. But Jesus knew that his ultimate mission was to go to the cross and three days later to rise from the dead. And that is how he would save and rescue his people. Jesus silences the enemy so that the message of salvation would not be distorted and his mission of going to the cross would not be distracted. Church, today we see this continue to be played out, the message of the gospel being distorted and people being distracted from the mission of Jesus. So followers of Jesus, let me caution you for a third and final time, as you live in the midst of the crowd, not to allow the message to be distorted or the mission to be distracted. Living in the crowd can cause us to be distracted from the mission the great mission that Jesus calls us to be a disciple and to make disciples. To be a disciple and make disciples. And we're going to talk about discipleship here in a few minutes, but let me summarize so far, okay? The crowd cares more about the body than the soul. The crowd uses Jesus and does not treasure Jesus. The crowd distorts the message of Jesus and distracts people from the mission of Jesus. Well, okay, enough about the crowd. Let's redirect our attention to the called-out ones, all right, the church. And let's find what the called can take comfort in. Look with me now at Mark 3, verse 13. And when he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, 
and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. That could also be translated the loud ones, okay? But sons of thunder sounds cooler. All right, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, who, interesting, his name was also Judas, but decided to start going by Thaddeus for obvious reasons, okay? Um, and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay, church, don't miss what is happening here. Okay, don't miss it. Don't just, don't just read through these names like, oh yeah, I forgot about some of those apostles, whatever. Don't miss what's happening. Jesus is forming the start of his church, the called out ones. Just like God had installed the 12 tribes of Israel, here he's forming a new Israel with his 12 apostles. His strategy for church growth, so, so to speak, is to call 12 to be with him for these next three years while he's doing ministry on the earth so that they could then be sent out by him. Jesus just escaped from the crowd and all the distractions and the distortions of the crowd, and now he is going to engage in intentional discipleship. Intentional discipleship. Now, we've talked about discipleship here in the past. Um, it's kind of a churchy word that we don't use much outside of the church, and so we either forget what it means or we're intimidated by it, right? Like to go make disciples sounds like something we would need a Ph.D. for or a long robe or something like that, but we just feel ill-equipped to go make disciples. So let's, let's remind one another what this means. To be a disciple on one hand means to be a student or a learner, okay? To be a disciple means to be a student or a learner, but it is done in such a way that you have active fellowship with the one you are learning from. You are following in their steps, so to speak. And so it is accurate to say that to be a disciple of Jesus is to be a follower of Jesus. You are learning from him as you are in active fellowship with him. So to be a disciple is to be a follower of Jesus, and to make disciples then is to go help others follow Jesus. To be a disciple is to be a follower of Jesus. To make disciples is to go help others follow Jesus. This is how the church was established. This is how the gospel advanced, and this is the church growth strategy installed by Jesus. It wasn't to go after the crowds. It wasn't. It wasn't to do whatever you can to get the biggest crowd possible to have one person preach to them. That was not Jesus' strategy. No, it was following Jesus. It was being intentional with a few and helping them learn from him while they were in active fellowship with him. Jesus escaped from the crowds to engage in intentional discipleship. And so church, as we get established and as we grow, we might someday have more programs. We might. We might someday have more events. But what has to stay at the center of everything we do is we must be intentional in making disciples. We must be intentional with helping others follow Jesus. And we are doing this as a church, but I think we need to be even more intentional about this. 
Certainly coming to a worship gathering on a Sunday morning, this is a part of your discipleship process. This is a part of helping you follow Jesus, to come hear the word proclaimed, to receive it, to sing it, to read it, to pray it, to see it with the Lord's Supper. This is all formative in your discipleship process. And then our city groups are a place that we can continue to help one another follow Jesus, where we can be in a smaller group of people to apply the word and pray for one another, encourage one another, live life together. That most definitely needs to be happening and is happening. But then I think in addition to that, you need to be intentional in getting together one-on-one with one another to do things like just simply opening up the Bible and reading, to pray with one another, there doesn't have to be some, some fancy new curriculum. We don't have to come up with, with a complex strategy. But you just watch simply being intentional with someone, opening up God's word with them, and praying. You just watch what the Spirit of God will do through that. It might not happen overnight. It might not be that next day you all of a sudden are just overflowing with fruit, but you watch in the long run, the long-term being intentional, helping one another follow Jesus, it will produce fruit that is exponential. This is how the mission advances and how it always has. And so we don't need to systematize this right now. We don't need to come up with some system or structure to make this happen. What we need is we need individuals to be intentional about this, to call out a few to pour your life into, to go through the word with, to pray with, to encourage, to reach out to. We need people to be intentional about doing this. Now, I know I was cautioning you about some of the concerns of the crowd, but now let's enjoy what the called can take comfort in, okay? Let's direct our gaze to Jesus and look at why he called anyone out of the crowd. Because don't miss this. Don't miss this opportunity to worship and treasure Christ. The crowd was about to crush him. They wanted to use him. They cared more about their bodies and their souls. They were distorting his message. They were distracting from his mission. But look how good, gracious, and loving Jesus is. Verse 13, he went up on the mountain and called. He called. Jesus called a people out of the crowd. He didn't have to. He could have just escaped to be on his own. He could have said, I will just do this without you. He could have said, hey, this is a lost cause. But no, he calls a people out of the crowd. And why? Why would he call? Look at verse 13. And when he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Jesus calls those whom he desires. He desires them. And church, he desires us. Church, your faith in Christ is evidence that he desires you. And if you are at a point right now where you have not put your faith in Christ, but you felt that kind of tugging and pulling, you've had life circumstances happen where it seems like someone is calling to you, I'm telling you, Christ is calling And he desires you. You didn't accidentally find your way into church. You didn't stumble into becoming a Christian. You are an uninvited or unwanted guest. Your faith is evidence that he has called you. And if he has called you, he desires you. I've shared this verse with you before, but it's from uh, Psalm 149, verse 4. 
It says, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. The Lord takes pleasure in you and has called you and desires you. And church, if you are tempted to feel undesirable, may you know and rest and take comfort in that Jesus desires you and has called you. He not only loves you, he likes you. That's the first truth that the called can take comfort in. Jesus desires us. The second truth the called can take comfort in is look at verse 14. It says he appointed 12. The word appointed in the original language means to make something. To make something. It means to create something. He took fishermen, he took a tax collector, he took a zealot, he took brothers who were called the loud ones, and he takes all of these unlikely, unimpressive, excuse me, unprepared, and these emergency goalies, if you will, he takes all of these guys and he makes them apostles. He makes them into something they were not. He did not call them because of what they could do for him. They didn't attain a certain level of apostleship by their hard work or self-help. No, Jesus made them into apostles. He created apostles. He did not call them because of what they could do for him. They were called for the purpose of what God would create in and through them. Jesus was calling and making a people for himself. And it wasn't based upon their merit. It wasn't based upon their skills or their resumes. No, it was according to his good pleasure to call out of the crowd a people who he would make and create something new in and through. And the same is true for us today. John 15, verse 16 says this. It says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. I've made you into something that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. The called out ones can take comfort in the fact that the one who calls us first desires us and second is making and creating something new in and through us. And lastly, the called can take comfort in the truth that when Jesus calls, our lives are given purpose. Our lives are given purpose. Look at verse 14, Mark 3, verse 14. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed 12 so that they might be with him. Think back to the Garden of Eden for a second. The fellowship that Adam and Eve had in the garden where they walked with God. Can you imagine? And this fellowship was then broken by sin. But Christ came to defeat sin and break the curse so that we could once again walk with God. And Jesus is calling a people to be with himself. He is calling to be with them. He wants fellowship with them. He wants to walk with them. And this is not a new idea that springs up in the New Testament. No, this is a return to the garden where before sin, we walked with God. 
Jesus calls us back to himself to follow him, to fellowship with him, and to walk with him. And Jesus not only calls the disciples so that they would be with him, but also so that they could be sent out by him to preach his message and participate in his mission. Jesus not only calls the disciples so that they would be with him, but also so that they could be sent out by him to preach his message and participate in his mission. The called are also the sent. Church, the purpose to which you have been called is to commune and enjoy Jesus. And we are also called now to go with him and be sent out by him. This is what we mean when we talk about being missional, okay? Being missional. That's kind of a popular phrase that gets thrown around right now in a lot of books. But what it means is that we live with the understanding that we are called to Jesus, that those that are called to Jesus are also sent by Jesus. Those that are called to fellowship with Jesus are also called and commissioned to be sent out by Jesus to preach and proclaim the good news. We are also sent to participate in Jesus' mission of opposing evil and making disciples. And so we are to fight against injustices. We are to help people out of poverty. We are to liberate the oppressed. We are to seek the well-being and physical and spiritual healing of the world around us. The called-out ones are also the sent ones. And you'll never fully grasp an understanding of what it means to be called to Jesus until you understand that you are also sent by Jesus commissioned by Jesus out into the world. And Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said this in one of his sermons, which might be one of the most convicting things I've ever read, so buckle up. He said this. He said, every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Recollect that you are either trying to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. The man who says, I believe in Jesus, but does not think enough of Jesus ever to tell another about him is an imposter. Maybe I was the only one convicted by that. I don't know. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Let that marinate for a little bit today. You can go home and think about that one, okay? The called out ones are called by Jesus, desired by Jesus, made into something new by Jesus for the purpose of walking with him and to be sent out by him. But being sent out can be a little scary, right? I don't know about you, it sounds a little intimidating, a little scary to be sent out, commissioned by Jesus out into the world. But church, there is great comfort that Jesus provides us as he sends us out. It's not as if he calls us to be with him for a little while and then says, hey, good luck, you're on your own. No, remember the Great Commission, which I know many of you are familiar with, but let me read it for you this morning from Matthew 28, 18 and 20. It says, and Jesus came to him, came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, here it is, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go help others follow Jesus, make disciples, and then what does he say? Does he say, I'll see you later and good luck? No, he says, I am with you always. We are not sent out on our own. We are called to Christ, and then we are given his spirit. We are given the spirit of God to go empower us, to go with us out into the world to seek and save the lost. But church, being sent out by and with Jesus to preach the gospel and to participate in his mission, it's not an easy or a comfortable calling. But it is a calling we can take comfort in. Okay? It's not an easy or a comfortable calling, but it is a calling we can take comfort in. And let me explain. Following Jesus does not mean that our lives are always going to be easy and happy and comfortable, right? We're not always going to be happy and healthy, right? If you follow Jesus for more than like an hour, you know that to be true, that it's not always easy or comfortable. Following Jesus can lead to hardships. Following Jesus can lead to trials. Following Jesus can lead to persecution. It's not a comfortable calling. But it is a calling we can take comfort in because of this. Because those Jesus calls, Jesus also covers. Those Jesus calls, Jesus also covers. Those that are called to Christ are in Christ and are now covered by his blood. In 2013, you might remember hearing about a horrific mall massacre that occurred in Nairobi, Kenya. And it was carried out by a Somali-based terrorist group where five terrorists opened fire in a mall, killing about 67 people and wounding many others. And there was a mother who was in the mall when this was happening. She was having coffee with a friend. And when she heard the gunfire and saw the attackers, she dropped to the ground and just laid perfectly still. She was laying there hoping that she wouldn't be noticed at all. And next to her was a, a young man who was also laying there. And he was very still. She was being very quiet, just hoping they wouldn't see them. And then this young man's phone started to ring. And she thought for sure that that phone ringing, that call, was going to lead to her death because it would alert the attackers that she was there. And so she tried to get the young man to silence the phone, and he wasn't responding, so she reached over to silence his phone for him. And when she did, she noticed that he had already been shot. He had already been killed. He was laying in a pool of blood with no pulse. Well, she silences the phone, and then off in the distance, she can see the attackers are starting to come towards her, but they haven't noticed her yet. And what she did next, it might sound a little gruesome, but she was in survival mode. What she started to do was she started to cover herself with that young man's blood. She started grabbing his blood and just putting it in her hair, covering her head, covering her body with his blood. And when the attackers came close to her, she laid 
perfectly still, covered by that innocent person's blood. And they passed by, thinking she had already been killed. And when she eventually was rescued from the mall, she was interviewed by a reporter, and she said this. She said of the young man, she said, I'd love to know who he was, because I think his blood protected me. I think his blood saved my life. And church, I hope you are starting to see some of the richness of the good news of Jesus. And I hope you are starting to take comfort in the fact that the one who has called you has covered you with his blood. You weren't just a good person who finally decided to start following Jesus. You weren't just a smart person who finally figured out the way to life. You were as good as dead, laying on that mall floor with only destruction awaiting you. But then someone called. And even though because of your sin, you deserve for that to be your blood that was shed. No, the one who called you said, I myself will go down and spill out my blood for my people so that they might be covered. You see, because of the blood of Jesus, we no longer have to live like the crowd, but we can live as the called. Because of the blood, we no longer have to obsess over or serve our physical bodies, but we can instead steward our bodies and look forward to those new resurrected bodies that we will obtain in the new heavens and new earth. Because of the blood of Jesus, we no longer have to use or crush Jesus for selfish gain because Jesus already willingly allowed himself to be crushed on our behalf so that we could be forgiven and healed and approved and accepted. Church, he who has called you desires you and is creating something new in and through you and has given you a purpose. And this is a good and gracious God who not only desires you, but died for you so that you could be with him and so that you could be sent out then into the world to herald and proclaim not your own good ideas, not your own self-help strategies, and not your own motivational thoughts, but that you might go out into the world with nothing else to proclaim except what that mother in Kenya proclaimed. There was an innocent man whose blood was spilt. I want you to know him. I believe his blood has saved my life. May that forever and always be the message the called out ones proclaim. Let's pray. Jesus, we were, we were the unimpressive, we were the unlikely, we were the unprepared. We were enemies of yours in our sin, God. And we thank you so much that you called us, that you desired us, and that you have covered us, God. We thank you for the sacrificial death on a cross where your blood was poured out on our behalf so that we might be healed, forgiven, accepted, and freed. God, may we be empowered and compelled to live on mission, to proclaim your good news, and participate 
in what you are doing and working in this world. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.